I'm going to be preaching James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Some of you have been following along, and I am guessing that even watching us on Sunday has been a challenge. It's maybe a little harder to pay attention. If you've got little kids in your midst, they may not pay that much attention. And even we're in the season right now where for a while we're not going to have kids class. So I've got to preach a sermon where the kids want to listen. And you guys are good kids. Well, I'm going to do something in how I'm going to approach things. I want it to be kid-friendly as I can while also having substance for adults. When I went to grad school or seminary, I had some friends at seminary who were the smartest students. And they grew up in a church tradition that did not have Bible class. And, you know, it was a little bit, maybe quaint, a little bit quirky, but the reasoning of their church tradition was we're all family, we should all be in the same room, we should separate ourselves out. So the style of the church was short and family-friendly, where kids felt at home, and the preaching was both pretty deep, but also trying to make sure the kids understood something. Well, my friends who grew up in that were the smartest guys in seminary. They had learned how to be smart from the church. And we went to Africa together, and of all the missionaries that hung out with, they were the smartest ones. They had learned a style of learning the church that was really good. So I'm going to start here. If you watch me, I tried to introduce James. I'm going to assume that you didn't quite catch it, and I'm not going to give you everything. But I'm going to particularly, I'm hoping the kids will catch this. I want to talk about who is James. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about the audience, and we're going to talk about the text. I'm going to even test kids, maybe not this group, but, but uh, the older ones for sure. I'm going to test them next week. Say, did you remember this? Here's four things I want you to know. If you read the first verse of James, he introduced himself. Well, the guy question is, well, who is this James? If you pick up a commentary or several, you'll get basically four possibilities, but about 90% of them will say it's this guy. And I'm not going to test the kids on all possibilities. They'll say the 90% will say it's this guy. Here's four things you ought to know about him. He is most likely the brother of Jesus. Jesus seemed had two brothers we find in the New Testament. One was James. One was named Jude. They were, we were theologically, they were half-brothers, but they shared the same mom, biologically. It doesn't seem that they believe their brother was really the son of God. They thought he was nuts when he started preaching, and I can understand that. I would think my older brother was kind of nuts if he was Jesus too. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they saw him, and it changed their life, just like how the resurrection changes our lives. James became an early church leader, and he was generally, I'll use the term, more conservative. If we can use these terms, if some are conservative, they try to keep things the same, and some are always pushing for change. He was more conservative. He was more of a stable factor that kept the church kind of even cute. And in particular, as they were relating to Jewish and Gentile relationships. He stayed in Jerusalem and provided stability. But if I was going to give you a word that you would hear on ESPN to describe James, he was a game changer. Though he was kind of the stable base guy when the church was really having conflict, and when organizations do that, you get a lot of perspectives, and someone will say, okay, here's the best idea, and gather people to it. James is that guy. He's the game changer at the Jerusalem Conference. You know what? I was going to tell older kids something. I'm going to tell this. Little kids, 
I'm going to tell you a story I didn't tell first service. I'm going to tell a story about a man named Abraham and Rahab. They did bad things, but they were called heroes. When I was a little boy, my mom, I had two little brothers, and my mom told me that one day I was going to hurt my brothers in a fight and I would feel bad. I never believed my mom. I thought she was just exaggerating. I always hit them as hard as I could. One time, my brother Mark was really irritating, and I picked up a rock and I threw it at him. I hit him in the head. His head started to hurt. I felt really bad. My mom was right. I want you to know something, kids. The story that we're going to see today, there's two people named Abraham and Rahab. They did some really bad things, but in the story, they're really good They're examples of faith. I want you to know that I hope you won't do this, but sometimes you'll do something that will make you feel bad. You can talk to your dad, your mom, your grandparents, me as a pastor, Ralph, any of us about it. And God's big enough, he can take our bad things and make it good. Remember that. That's the thing I want you to remember for living. Now, text for today. Stand up. I'm going to read this. It's James. Chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? <clears throat> if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is good, God is one good, even the demons believe in a shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was acted together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith. Please be seated. You know what? I only got a couple of kids here. But let me tell you something. Of the boys that are here, you always struck me as being really smart kids. You remind me of my brothers and I, because I grew up with three boys. And then God gave my wife and I three boys. So I just smile when I see three boys. I'm going to tell another story about one of my sons. His name is Ethan, and I'm embarrassed to say this. He might be the smartest kid in my family. And when Ethan was 12 years old, we were sitting around the table, and Ethan had done a lot of thinking, and he had decided there were three categories of human beings that we could interact with. The one category, and I don't want to use the name, but it was people who aren't very smart those that just have some intellectual issues. Then he said we ran around with two groups of smart people. 
And he defined the smart people as either willpower thinkers or natural thinkers. Ethan had a personality theory at 12 years old. And he decided that a natural thinker was just a person who was naturally smart, who could hear things and remember it, he could read things and remember it, he didn't have to write things down, he didn't need memory tricks, he didn't need to do that much work, he was just naturally smart. However, Ethan said, there's other people, they have to work at being smart. They're willpower thinkers. They're smart just by their willpower. They have to read things, and they read it over and over, and they create memory tricks, and they write things down. They become smart because of the strength of will. I thought that was really clever, so I told Ethan, I said, you know, I think I'm going to use that as a sermon illustration. Can you write that down? I'm going to put it in a file and pull it up. Ethan said, I'm a natural thinker. I don't do that type of work. <laughs> well, as we've read this text, if I can use Ethan's illustration, we, a few months ago, were working through Galatians, which was working through all of the difficult philosophic things of how do we work out faith and works. It will require us to be able to think complex and think about complex things. And there are times in life where you need somebody who has great capacity to deal with complexity. It could be a medical doctor. It could be at times a pastor. It could be an engineer. There are certain professions that require the ability to think through complex things. And then there's life that's just common sense. We're in this season right here. This, looking at James, it's common sense. It's natural thinking. And I'm not going to spend the time doing the complexity that we did in Galatians, trying to think through this, but I want you to know this. We cannot be saved by our own work, but when we have faith, it leads us to do good things, to produce work, to produce fruit. And James is all full of practical illustrations of how that works out. And if you're a willpower thinker or a complex thinker, I'm going to ask you to put your Willpower thinking kind of on hold and just say, I'm going to be a common sense guy for this sermon. Here's the illustrations. The first one that comes up, and we've read this, is how can you have faith and then you see a family member who doesn't have any clothes on or food and you ignore him? James uses the words brothers and sisters talking about family. It would be like me noticing Jana is in North Dakota, and I'm making fun of her. She doesn't have a winter coat, and it's really cold outside. And I just said, well, go out and enjoy North Dakota in your T-shirt. Or the kids are hungry, and I say, well, be fed. And they're going, I'm still hungry. And I say, well, God will feed you. you know, it's just using the words when there's something practical that you can do. We can't just use religious words and pretend that's helpful. Faith with no helpful action actually is a dead faith. If you're not helping your community and your faith is all that to you, it's dead. Common sense is that. Second illustration that James gives is some people try to make faith in works like two spiritual gifts. They'll say, you know, you were given a gift by the Holy Spirit where you can believe a lot of things. Well, I'm given the gift where I can do a lot of things. And we try to make these two contrasts of go through the Spirit or gift of the Spirit. 
Some will say that faith is just, it's an intellectual assent. It's saying, I believe these things. I think these things. I'm convinced of these things. And we might call it a statement of faith or a creed or a doctrinal statement. Or we might even be in one of these church traditions that says we have no creed but the Bible. But there's a few things that we absolutely believe. Well, we can't say that it's just faith as a set of right beliefs. Because even James tells us this, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe in So if the demons believe and they just have faith, can we just have the faith of a demon that just says, well, it's just what we sense? You know, that doesn't make sense. Common sense says it doesn't work that way. The third illustration, and illustration number three and number four are stories. And one story is about a man named Abraham. The second is about a woman named Rahab. And James is candid. Some translations, as he starts to use these things, will use the word senseless or foolish or stupid when people just don't have this common sense. And if you've been around common sense North Dakota people, you know when they get frustrated when somebody's making something too complex and you know they're just a story and you can look at the story and you can help you think through this. Let's go to school and learn. I won't tell you the whole story. I won't read it to you. But Abraham's story is in the book of Genesis. And like I said to the kids, you might do something bad. If I ever was shopping in Bismarck at a local establishment, and I was dealing with the owner, and he dealt with me the way that Abraham deals with people in the first couple of chapters of the story, I would never go back to him and invite a nasty yelper. Abraham was by nature dishonest and bad. But God gets a hold of him. And God journeys with him. And one of the journeys that Abraham goes on is God promises him like a friend that when you get old, you and your wife are going to have a child. And they put their hope in this. And they journey. But as the story goes on, they get older and older and older. And if I make fun of me that you're wearing bifocals and your hearing's declining and your back's hurting and your knee's hurting and your memory's declining and you know you don't have the strength you once did. That's what's happening. And in all of that weakness, Abraham tries to manipulate a little but got blocked. And then his wife becomes pregnant. And the child's born and dies up and dies and needs the laughter because he just knew now, I'm an old man editorial. I laugh more at little kids as I get older. And in a certain way, they irritate me less, and I just love being laughed at. And you may have seen somebody who has a child like when they're, not that you and I are going to do this, like you're about Jan and I's age and you have a child. And you start to try, it's your biological child, but you treat it more like a grandchild. I think that's what's going on with Abraham. And God speaks to him and says, you have to go sacrifice yourself. And for us, sometimes there's something that we hold on to dear. We think God's promised to us. And we have to relinquish it. This is the ultimate story. Abraham travels, goes up a mountain, and is about ready to kill the son. And the angel speaks to him and says, stop, for your testimony. The story becomes one about how our faith practically works out. 
And the way our faith practically works out is we are continually relinquishing, we're continually obeying, we're continually being refined. And it's actually the difficult things in life which strengthens our faith. And Abraham provides an example because this working faith is the faith that fights. That's how our faith is. We work with our hands. Last story. And I appreciate you kids. I am proud to preach you too old. It's a woman named Rahab. She's described as a prostitute. I won't describe that. She lives in the city of Jericho. She grows up in a pagan household worshiping idols. Her city's full of all sorts of pagan practices. And the Israelite nation is coming into what's their promised land and they're taking control of the military. She is a woman who God's spirit speaks to and she sees God moving through an army that's of a different nation than hers. And she feels the fear. And that's where God starts with us many times. Israel sends a couple of spies into the city she lives. And instead of taking those spies and turning them over to the leaders of her city, having them brutally grilled and waking up the battle, she knows this is the hand of God. And she protects them. She deceives a little bit to keep them safe. She sends them away. And as the story goes on, she is seen as a hero of faith. She's listed in the genealogy of King David and of Jesus. And this story tells me, when James, who is this conservative man at church, says, I want to tell you about what practical faith is like, if this is the story that the old man uses, you better make sure you do that. God can use anyone and our faith has to display itself in things like acts of courage and loyalty and risk. Like Rahab, she becomes a hero of the faith. Just as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Let me ask for you to stand. This is going to be our closing prayer, our closing benediction. Coming from the Book of Common Prayer, this is the prayer for you. O God, who has prepared for those who love thee such good things as past men's understanding, pour into our hearts such love towards thee, that we lovingly in all things and above all things may obtain thy promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Go with God. It's good to see you all.